Well, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor at the Village Church. Today, we launch a five-week series on heaven and hell. Before we jump into that, um, I want to share with you what's actually happening right now at a church down the road. Tri-Village Church is an incredible church there in Streamwood, and a couple of our elders are there right now with their elders, and right now they are commissioning um, our new discipleship pastor, Dean Annan, from that church, and next week, they're all going to be over here, and at the beginning of both of our services, we're going to be installing Dean, and we're going to have some of their elders and our elders up front uh, commissioning him and installing him to be the next discipleship pastor here at the Village Church. So I want to invite you back next week, because it is rare that you get to see two elder boards from two different churches collaborate so closely in a spirit of unity. So I'm so excited for Dean and his wife, Chris, to be here. Uh, Dean has already started going through a whole bunch of new employee orientation, wrapping his brain around all that is Village Church, but uh, he's really going to be here every Sunday starting next week. Uh, I encourage you to get to know him. He is a great, great dude. have loved spending time with him so far. All righty. Hebrews... Chapter 9, verse 27, it's a haunting verse. And here's what it says. It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. If you ask a thousand people, what happens one minute after you die? You're going to get about a thousand different responses. And I have really incredible news for you. Jesus has taught on this subject extensively. And from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we are informed and instructed. And our biggest questions and worries are answered with unbelievable clarity. The Apostle Paul was given vision into heaven. And in fact, as you read his letters, you start to understand this, this man understands the nature of what comes after death really, really clearly because he's incredibly motivated by it. You read the apostle John, he, he had a vision into hell and into heaven. And John has an unusual amount of insight into what happens one minute after you die and then for eternity. Erwin Lutzer, pastor of Moody Church downtown, former pastor, he wrote this. One minute after you die, you will either be elated or terrified. One minute after you die, you will either be elated or terrified. This quote is from a really incredible short book called One Minute After You Die. I would encourage you to read it. If you download the audiobook, it's about four hours long. If you double speed it, it's two hours, and it's basically like listening to one of my sermons, so your brain is already, already ready for it. But in the, in the book, he shares an illustration. He says, trying to comprehend eternity is like taking a tape measure from here to the moon. And our life is less than one line on that tape measure. And yet we feel like it's everything. And I have really good news for you. This isn't everything. This is all really temporary. And what you and I do here matters. Amen? It matters for all of eternity, and it's really easy to play the short game and forget the long game. So over the next five weeks, here's some of the questions that we're going to be answering. Today is what happens one minute after you die. Next week, we're going to be answering the question, is hell real? What is it like? 
Who goes there and why? Where is hell? Is it physical or spiritual? Um, it would have been great irony to preach on hell on Halloween, but we decided we'd postpone it one week. <laughs> For the three weeks after that, we're going to be talking about the nature of, of the eternal state. What is heaven like? What will we do there? What will our bodies be like? Because after all, we're a resurrection people. How will it be different than life on earth? Is it physical or spiritual or is it both? And we're going to be digging into these and opening up the word of God and letting it form our thoughts and our minds. And, and I'm telling you, Pastor Craig and I, as we've been preparing this series, uh, every time we get into this subject, our minds are just kind of blown at the beauty and the majesty of what God has prepared. And all we get is like a little tiny glimpse. Now, the evil one is highly invested in spreading disinformation and misinformation about the eternal state. Where you go, how you get there, what it's going to be like. At the end of the day, he does not want you to know the reality because the reality, if you understand it, will change how you live today. So I want to, on the front end of this, I want to share with you um, six key strategies that the devil has used in his misinformation campaign that has gone on for millennia. But I want to contextualize it for the 21st century today. So six key strategies. Here's the first one. True stories from near-death experiences. Now, I'm not here to validate which ones are true and which ones are false, but um, here's what we do know. There are a handful of people that really account for the same experience over and over again. And what we find is some really interesting similarities. There's a whole bunch of people who have near-death experiences, and they describe seeing a light. And what's also interesting, they, they interact and interface with this light, and almost always the light is telling them gospel lies, and so they leave, they come back from this experience and they'll say things like, God is going to send everybody to heaven. All he is is love. There's, everyone's going to get there at the same time and all this really interesting things. And what you start to realize is who, who, who really masquerades themselves as an angel of light in scripture? Satan does. And it's interesting that there are actually some experiences though, and they seem to be fewer, where people have near-death experiences and they come back and they are petrified of the reality of hell and understand that salvation is only ever through faith in Jesus. There are some people who describe heaven and they describe it biblically. They seem to have gotten some kind of vision. I'm not here to debate whether it did or didn't happen, but here's what we do know. Somehow, in these near-death experiences, this has been used as a part of a misinformation campaign to get people to be distracted from the reality of what scripture teaches. Here's the second strategy. Real encounters with spiritual beings describing the so-called afterlife. What we learned in our spiritual war series is if you encounter a spirit, a ghost, or a spiritual being, is it God or an angel? Everybody say no. Probably not. If you're having an actual conversation with a spirit, it is most likely a demon who in behalf of Satan, he is a thief and he wants to only steal and kill and destroy. But this is a part of a major misinformation campaign that the devil has been on for millennia. Number three, the multiplicity of religions. Uh, what the Apostle Paul communicates and teaches is that many false religions came out of a demon's minds and are designed to distract. And so here's what happens. Now we see all of these religions and we say to ourselves, how can I really know what's real or true? There are just so many. And then we give up. At the end of the day, if you just look behind the curtain of almost all of them, they fail 
under scrutiny. They can't answer basic questions, and their holy books are suspect at best. But most of us don't really know how to do the research, so culturally we just give up. And we're like, well, there's just so many. How can we really know what's true? Number four, the fourth strategy is the creation and the spreading of cultural mantras. If you've been around Village Church, you will hear this phrase quite a, quite a bit from me. Cultural mantras are mindless phrases that are culturally authoritative but factually useless. So when you hear them, they bypass your head and they go right to your heart and they give your heart a huge hug. The problem is, even though they feel really good, they're not true. Here's just a couple of cultural mantras uh, that are misleading many people from understanding the truth of what happens one minute after you die. All religions are just different paths to the same destination. Doesn't that just give your heart a big hug? A God of love would never send someone to hell. Now, next week, we're going to dig into the doctrine of hell and unpack what scriptures say. It'll probably be my least favorite sermon that I ever preach at Village Church, truly. But it's one of the subjects that we have to deal with, and we have to open up the Word of God and say, what does the Word of God say? God has revealed this to us. Jesus has a lot to say on it. But there's this cultural mantra, God of love would never do that. Well, what do we do when we open up the scriptures and they talk about this a lot. Here's another one. Good people go to heaven. And so people hear this. It bypasses their head. It gives their heart a hug. And then most everybody on the planet who does not know the gospel believes this. If I accrue enough good works, I'm going to get there. And I really hope my good works outweigh my bad works. These are cultural mantras created by the demonic realm, perpetuated by media, so that you and I don't think too deeply about the word of God and spiritual things. Strategy number five is the implanting of culturally charged questions, particularly about hell. So you remember in the Garden of Eden, it just took one question from Satan to Eve to dismantle her brain for a moment. Did God say? And then this doubt starts to creep in and it grows, and it causes the first sinful experience with Adam and Eve. There are culturally charged questions created and, and put out by the demonic realm to cause you to doubt the goodness of God. Let me share a couple with you. Would a God of love ever do this? How could God be loving and send people to hell? Now, do these questions deserve an answer? For sure. But understand they were created to cast doubt in your heart and in your confidence in the character of God and in the word of God. Because if you doubt that, then you're going to be no good. If you doubt the goodness of God, the character of God, and the word of God, you will live today, YOLO. This will be your life, right? And here's the sixth strategy. Media reinforcing numbers one through five. I'm going to be conservative on my estimate here. I'm going to say 99%. 99% of everything you read or you see in movies or television about the afterlife is wrong. Too conservative? 99.8% of what you see on TV, in movies, 
in literature, in magazines, on social media, in articles is flat wrong. And this is a part of a massive misinformation campaign designed in collaboration with the first five to make you throw your hands in the air and say, give up, who can know it's not possible. And yet from the beginning, the word of God has been telling us, lovingly communicating with us what happens one minute after you die. So let's dig in together. What we're going to do this morning is a bit of training. So there's going to be a lot of information I share with you. And if you want any of the slides that we have up on the screen by Monday or Tuesday, if you go to Village Church Digital, find the sermon, you can download the PDF of all the slides. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 32, and it's a story probably most of you are familiar with. It's a story of two very real men facing certain death within either hours or minutes. They're on either side of Jesus hanging on a cross. Uh, we know they're going to die. Even if they were taken down, their injuries alone would have killed them within a few hours or a day. Death is inevitable. It is moments away, and we're going to watch the heart of two men before our very own eyes. Luke chapter 23, we're going to actually start in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. That's Jesus. And the Greek word is blasphemeo. Can you guys guess what English word we begin to derive from this? The, the blasphemy and, and this idea that he is angry and derisive and criticizing and condescending are all accurate. He says, this guy railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, does this man have any confidence in Jesus' ability to save them spiritually or physically? And of course, the answer is not at all. Well, there's another criminal and next to him in verse 40. Here's what it says. The other rebuked him, not Jesus, but rebuked the other criminal, saying, do you not fear God? Have you ever wanted to look at somebody and say this? Really, do you have no fear? Do you have no notion of what is going to be happening after this? Do you have no fear of God since you were under the same sentence of condemnation? Bro, you're going to die. You're guilty. Aren't you like a little bit afraid? Verse 41, the repentant thief, here's what he says, still talking to the other thief, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man, Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. Then the thief turns to Jesus in verse 42, and he says this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This dude doesn't know much. I'm guessing he didn't go to Sunday school a lot. I'm guessing he wasn't regularly doing quiet times and devos and like immersed in the word of God. I'm guessing he didn't have a degree in theology. I'm guessing this dude's knowledge of Jesus is fairly limited. But let me tell you what he knew. He knew he was a guilty sinner. He knew that he deserved death. He knew that whatever was coming after this, he deserved it. And he knew that whoever this Jesus guy was, had authority over what comes next. And he looks over at him. I don't know how he knew this. I don't know how he, how he got this into his brain. But he looks at him and he's like, you got a kingdom. I want to be in it. Remember me. That's all I ask. And the humility with which he goes to him, like, I don't deserve this. When you go there, remember me. And then Jesus speaks words that honestly, they have reverberated throughout history. And here's what he says. 
Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Hey, bro, I'll see you in a few minutes. So let's just, I'm gonna unpack for a moment just a few, three implications of this story. Number one, terrible humans can be saved. Amen? You have the person in your life, you think they're too far gone. Like they're never gonna turn. They're never gonna trust in Christ. I guarantee you this thief was written off by everybody in his life. His own mother probably wrote him off. Now he's gonna die. Now my son has no chance. Nobody probably believed this guy would be the one that you would see in heaven. Number two, terrible humans, by the way, like him and you and I, can be saved at the very last moment. Never underestimate the power of the gospel in moments right before death. Never underestimate it. Never underestimate what God is up to by the terminal diagnosis that that person you love has gotten. Never underestimate the series of events that the Lord is orchestrating because this life is a little line on a long tape measure that goes forever and ever and ever. Never underestimate what the Lord is up to in those moments. We're gonna dig more into this, but I am convinced every miscarried baby, every aborted baby is gonna be on the new earth and we are gonna be blown away by the millions or billions of people there that we thought, how could it be populated with this many people? And the Lord is gonna be seen as merciful and gracious and righteous and our brains are gonna be blown away by what we see in those moments. And then you're gonna see a lot of people, and here's what they're going to say. Three seconds before I croaked, I was like, I believe, and Jesus was merciful. And I'm going to be like, but you don't deserve it. He's going to be like, neither do you. And I'm like, I can't believe it. <laughs> and there's going to be a lot of people that you wrote off. And there is, there is a clarity in your brain in those moments before. And you have no idea what the Lord is capable of. You have no idea what is going on. And there is a grace there. And, and I am very excited to see all of the hearts that were turned in the final moments and seconds before they breathed their last. There's a third implication here that I want to draw your attention to. Jesus knows exactly what happens one minute after you die. I just love his confidence. See you in a bit. You're going to be with me. It's going to be paradise. Oh, the other guy? Nope, not so much you. But you, <laughs> definitely. So two questions. Number one, what's paradise? Number two, where did the other guy go? I want to know both of these. So let's do some training. Uh, in the Old Testament, every time someone dies, they go to a place called Sheol. And Sheol is an Old Testament Hebrew word for the conscious location of all deceased souls until the resurrection. Do you see that preposition? Until? It's going to become very important every single week that we teach. Until the resurrection. And so the physical body clearly rests in the grave, but for the, for the Jews, the word shoal was deeper than that. It's the place where the soul goes. And when we think about heaven and hell, when we think of heaven, we point up, and we think of hell, we point down. And for them, as they thought of the afterlife, it was down. And what we see here is that there are two sections of Sheol. There are two compartments, if you will. And there is one for those who have rejected God. And there are those, another compartment for those who have trusted in God. 
And so there's a good part and a bad part. And trust me, you want to go to the good part and not the bad part. And we're going to watch a little bit of this un unfold. But before we go further, there is one massive piece of misinformation that I need to clarify with all of you now. Again, we'll revisit this over the upcoming weeks, but I want to make sure you know what the Bible teaches. When you die, your soul goes to Sheol until the resurrection of the dead. And we are Easter people, are we not? And the Bible teaches that there is going to be a physical, bodily resur resurrection, not just of Christians, but of non-Christians as well. And this double resurrection is taught explicitly in the Old Testament and explicitly in the New Testament, so that whatever the new heaven and the new earth looks like, it is going to be deeply physical for everyone. And so we find there are a couple uh, words here that I want to make sure you understand. Every human being will be resurrected either, number one, two, the new heavens and the new earth. Let's clarify what that is. Um, in Jewish theology, the first heaven is going to be the clouds. The second heaven is going to be the stars. And the third heaven is going to be the place where God dwells. There will not be a new heaven where God dwells. There will be a renewal of the entire earth, the heavens, the first heaven and the second heaven, the sky and the stars, all of that will be burned up and recreated. And so there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and this is the believer's permanent, physical, and wonderful home where you will reign with Jesus forever. Now there's another term here, which is hell or the lake of fire, or it's also called Gehenna by Jesus multiple times. And this is the unbeliever's permanent, physical, and terrible destiny away from God's presence. Now, starting next week, we're going to get into the physical side of the afterlife after the resurrection. Today, we're going to be talking about the afterlife before the resurrection. So back to Sheol. Sheol has two sections. Now, open up your Bibles with me. You're already in the book of Luke. Go back a few chapters to Luke chapter 16. This one won't be on the screen. So I want you to open up Luke chapter 16, verse 19. It's a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. Now, the rich man and Lazarus are probably not real people. They're inconsequential, technically. What's really interesting, though, is that what Jesus is answering for the disciples is the question, what happens one minute after you die? And actually, he tells them the process that they're going to go through. So the most valuable part of this is you get Jesus' glimpse, his understanding of what actually happens when you die and where you go. So Luke chapter 16, verse 19, here's what Jesus says. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. If you grew up reading the King James Version, you may have heard Abraham's bosom. I really prefer the term Abraham's side. So thankful to the new interpretations that Abraham's side, but you may know it as that. It's also interesting here that Jesus' understanding is that even angels are ministering spirits to give God glory and also to serve humanity. I don't know what that looks like, but there seems to be some kind of angelic presence in these moments. We go on in verse 22. The rich man also died, and he was buried, and in Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes 
and he saw Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish faith. He saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Just an interesting insight. Even in the afterlife, he still sees Lazarus as his slave. Now we're gonna get deeper into the mindset next week of those in hell. But verse 25 goes on. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. And besides all this, put all that aside, between us and you, it's a great chasm that's been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. One minute after you die, you will either be elated or terrified. And you will know in that moment that your destiny has been set. And so here he is, and he is wanting help, and, and Abraham just calls out what's true. No one is allowed to go from here to there or there to here. This is permanent. Verse 27, he goes on, then I beg you, Father, send, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear. And he said, no, Father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And this is a little prophetic moment for Jesus, because guess what's going to happen to him? He's going to be killed. He's going to rise from the dead. And he's going to declare to people that the resurrection of the dead is real. And people are going to mock him. So here's what he knows. If they won't listen, they won't listen. If you want to know truth, God will reveal to you truth. If you want reality, God will give you reality. And the hard reality is that most people actually don't want reality. So first, we see the place that Lazarus went. And Jesus called it paradise. Again, here he calls it Abraham's side. This is the place that you and I would call heaven. And I put a definition here. It's a delightful subset of Sheol where people right with God temporarily go until the resurrection. Let's get really controversial. I don't want to go to heaven forever. Heaven is a temporary place until the resurrection. Heaven is a spiritual place. My body and my soul at death are separated, and God has made the world to be the congruence of physical and spiritual. Go back to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve and angels and God walked together, and one could see and experience the other. That's the way the world was created to be in its ideal state, and that is the way the world is going to be created again, where the physical and the spiritual and the angelic and the divine converge, and there is one reality, no hidden reality over there, but one reality, and that's the reality that we look forward to. So when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, but not forever. I'm going to go to a new earth forever where my body is resurrected, imperishable, and it will never ever end. And we're going to look at the nature of that new life, that new body, that new earth. Will we work? What will we do? Will we play? Will we create? We're going to have a great time imagining what that might be like as we root our minds in God's word. But Paul is particularly excited about even just heaven. And the Lord gave Paul a vision into heaven. I am jealous. I want to see what he saw. 
And if you really, really pay attention to his writings, you'll see there's an undertone of like real deep excitement for what is about to come. I'll just give you a couple of these. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he says this, we would rather be away from the body and home with the Lord. People who have never seen heaven, like in theory, we say, oh yeah, I want to be with the Lord, yeah, yeah, yeah. But deep down inside, we're sort of scared. There was no fear of death whatsoever with this man because he saw what it was actually going to be like and he was like, holy moly, whatever the suffering is here, y'all, just wait for it. It'll be fine, it'll pass. When you see what the Lord has for you, whatever you suffered, whatever you went through, you're gonna be like, ah, that was totally worth the wait because what he has designed for you and I forever is gonna be incredible. Philippians 1.23, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two, life and death. My desire, what, what do I really want? I really want to depart and be with Jesus. Why? That is far better. And this is written from a man who saw it. And my favorite of all, we're going to spend much more time on this later, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. The second place that we see is the place where the rich man went, and this is called Hades. In the book of 2 Peter, the Greek word is Tartarus. It's a mythological term, and it refers to the underbelly of the earth where the worst of the spirits go. Also in the New Testament, it's called the abyss. This is a subset of Sheol where unbelieving people and the worst demons are tormented until the resurrection. So the scriptures have a lot to say about this, and I'd like to explore uh, the abyss and Hades with you just a little bit more. So you're still in the book of Luke, and I want you to go back to Luke chapter 8, verse 26 with me. It's not going to be on the screen, so open up your Bibles if you have them. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. It says this, They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus stepped out of the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons, singular or plural, plural. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, and he fell down before him, and he said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High God. Don't you love? They know exactly who he is. And then he says, I beg you, do not torment me. These demons understood two things. Number one, Jesus has authority over their destiny. But number two, what they know is that Jesus has already sent other demons to the abyss for torment early. Watch this, verse 29. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged Jesus not to command them to depart into 
the abyss. Wow, these guys are petrified of going to the abyss. Jude chapter one, verse six, references uh, another time when Jesus sent a group of evil angels to the abyss. And it's a story referencing what happened in Genesis chapter six. But here's what Second Peter says, or sorry, what Jude 1, 6 says. The angels, who were demons, who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Second Peter 2, 4 tells the same story of the same angels. Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, here's how John describes the abyss. He says this, the fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. There, there is apparently, and I don't know where the line is, but, but there is a line, and every demon knows it, if you cross this line, Jesus will find you and send you to the abyss early. And so only a foolish demon is going to cross the line of agreement. Whatever happened in, in Genesis 6 where angels had inappropriate relationships with men and women, they crossed the line and God intervened and he sent them to the abyss. And there are rules and apparently whatever is happening with this man who is possessed by legion, a line has been crossed. Because the moment they see Jesus, they freak out. And they're like, uh, oh no, please don't send us to the abyss. We know we crossed the line. We know what we deserve. Please don't do it. Now look what happens in verse 32. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And these demons, this legion, they begged him. Again, there's a lot of begging here. They begged him to let him enter them, these pigs. So... Jesus gave them permission, and the demons came out of the man, they entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they drowned. Do you know what the lake represents for Jews, the sea? It represents the place of the abyss, the entrance into the bottomless pit. And the irony of the author of Luke writing this is saying, Jesus sent them in, into, the, into the pigs, but the pigs brought them right down into the abyss. That's what's being communicated. These, these demons, they crossed a line, which is, I think, of great encouragement, by the way, to all of us. There are limits to what they're allowed to do. And at the end of, at the end of time, it seems that the key to this bottomless pit is opened, and there are a whole bunch of demons that come out, which is why the end of the world is a pretty freaky time and really challenging to study. But right now, there are a whole bunch of very evil, terrible demons locked up in the bottom of a bottomless pit, what's called the abyss. Praise God, they are not unleashed on this earth to do any more damage at this time. So who's in charge of these places? Thankfully, it is Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 1, one of my favorite Passages of Scripture, verse 17. John sees the resurrected, glorified Jesus. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and I am the last. I'm eternally preexistent and I will always be. Nothing can stop that. In verse 18, he says, I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Remember the resurrection? Remember that? I'm alive forevermore. You can't kill me. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I am in control. I am the sovereign. 
I am the King of kings. I am the Lord of lords. I am the determiner of destinies. I am the judge. I am the standard. Everything goes through me. I have the keys and no one else. Let's take a minute and summarize what we've learned. One minute after you die, you will either be elated or terrified. You will enter into an eternal place that is spiritual by nature, and it will either be wonderful or it will be terrible. And you will wait there until the resurrection of the dead. At that point, you will be given new bodies, resurrected bodies, and you will either go to the new earth with God forever, where you will rule and reign with Jesus, or you will be on the new earth in hell. Already your mind probably says, I have a lot of questions. Come back next week and we'll go deeper into that doctrine. So what? Three so what's. Number one, Christian, one minute after you die, you will know exactly where you are and you will see Jesus right away. Eternal life actually began the moment you were conceived. From that very moment, there is nothing that can stop life going on forever. But from the moment you die, you're going to have a new realization of what your eternity is going to be like. And I'll repeat Erwin Lutzer's phrase, one minute after you die, you Christian, you will be elated. I want to come back to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for you. The guy who got a vision, a glimpse into this, looks at you and says, just wait. Every single act of faithfulness to God now will be rewarded. Every single time you say no to your flesh, you say no to that indulgence, that deception, that lie, that manipulation, that substance, whatever it is, that person, every time you say no and choose to trust and follow Christ, you will be rewarded. In fact, you're going to get to heaven and the blood of Christ will cover all of your sin and all of your guilt and you will look at all of the moments of unfaithfulness covered by the blood of Christ and what has been lost and you will look at all of the moments of faithfulness and be like, wow, I cannot believe you would reward me like this. And you will regret every single moment that you did not live for Jesus this side of your death. I am telling you, be faithful at every moment. You will not regret it. And even though it is so hard, you will get to heaven and you will be rewarded beyond your wildest imagination. And I'm also in that very moment as I say this, so thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ. Because even though he is the only one that is ever perfectly faithful, I have a tendency to be pretty faithless. Anyone in this room? And the blood of Christ covers me at every corner and his mercies are new every single day. I am so grateful for the blood of Christ, but I am also so grateful for the incentive of faithfulness and the power to be faithful because of the spirit of Jesus that dwells in every single one of us. Trust him. Here's my second so what. If you have yet to trust in Christ, non-Christian, one minute after you die, you will know exactly where you are and you will be filled with immediate dread. I have incredible news for you. That is unnecessary. Because what God has done for us is revealed through the word of God and through Jesus 
exactly what happens one minute after we die into all of eternity, but he has also given us an incredible way out that is not by every other mechanism that you're used to. Every religion on the planet has the same dumb lie. Be good enough. Good people go to heaven. Accrue a bunch of good works. And that is not how heaven works. Salvation and forgiveness is not for those who are good. It's for terrible people like you and me and the thief on the cross. It's for people who trust in Jesus. And so you might be sitting here and you're like, I, I, wanna, I want to go to heaven. I do not want to go to hell. I do not want to go to Hades. I do not want to go to the abyss. I do not want to be anywhere near that. I do not want to be the rich man. I want to be Lazarus. I want to be like Abraham. I want to be with Jesus. And, and I love that the Lord doesn't play games. The world plays games. Religions play games. Religions make you work for it. And here's what Jesus says. Ask me. Ask me. Will you forgive me? Ask him to forgive your sins. Like the thief did, acknowledge who he is. Even like the demons did, acknowledge who he is. The son of the most high God, the mighty one, the one who controls our destinies. Do you, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? Do you believe that he is God? If you do, ask him to save you from your sins and forgive you and to give you the Holy Spirit. And 100% of the time, anyone with sincerity, ask him forgiveness. Do you know what he gives? Forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, a change of your destiny, adoption as sons, daughters. Your eternity is set in stone, and one minute after you die, you can know, despite how terrible of a person you were or might even be right now, and at times might continue to be, your destiny is set. Because you're good? No, because he keeps his promises every single time. If today you are ready to trust in Jesus, I want to encourage you we would love to come alongside of you. Maybe the person who brought you to church, uh, you're comfortable telling them, somebody you've seen up front. Uh, we would love to pray with you and champion you and help you figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus? We'd love to teach you and, and help you take those next steps. And if you are willing to do that, we'd love to come alongside of you. So after this service, please come find us. We're not gonna make you stand up and raise your hand. All you have to do is trust in Christ. Pray to him this morning. Here's my last so what. Trust in Christ. But this isn't for the non-Christian. This is for you, believer. I'm going to say it one more time, lest you forget it. I know you have trusted in Christ for salvation. But the misinformation campaign of the evil one has gotten into your head, into your heart. And you're doubting. You're living for here. You're living for this. This is one little line on a long measuring tape that goes way past the moon. And I, I want to... I wanna, Plea with you, trust in Jesus that he will reward every act of faithfulness, every moment of discipline, every act of obedience to his word, every time you come to church and you sincerely worship, the hard things that he asks you to do that are gut-wrenching and you don't want to do it, but you know it's what he wants and it's consistent or explicit in the word of God, every time you do it, trust him. He will never leave you or forsake you, and he will reward every act of faithfulness. Trust him. I want to take a moment. I want to pray for you, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. But this is the first of five, again, as we just dig deeper into these eternal things. And my prayer is that your excitement for the future, for eternity, has never been higher, and it grows and grows. Father, we love you. I am so thankful. Jesus had so much to say about what happens one minute after we die. 
And Lord, we just touched the very tip of the iceberg on this one. Father, as there are some here who are trying to figure it out. I know everybody wants to know, uh, but Lord, would you show them the truth of Jesus in your word? Would you answer maybe questions that are holding them back from really trusting in you? God, our desire as believers is to literally live as if eternity is real. So thank you for the blood of Christ that forgives us and the spirit of Christ that empowers us. May we never take them for granted. And even when we do, thank you again for the blood of Christ that gives us new mercies every single day. We love you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And listen to this verse. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. The spirits in prison, as he goes on, are the demons in the abyss. And it's interesting, some people have this notion in their mind that when Jesus died, he went to hell and suffered. Not true. He went and he proclaimed victory over every one of those dumb demons who overplayed their hand, who rebelled against him and said, I win, I was, I'm gonna resurrect, I'm gonna take everybody with me and y'all are done. And by the way, when all this is said and done at the judgment, you're gonna go to hell forever. I win. And when Jesus wins, guess who else wins? We do. And so when we celebrate communion today, my just simple ask is, would you relish with gratitude in the victory that he has given you through the shed blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you're here with us, you might be from a different church, and we want to invite you, whatever church you go to, if you have trusted in Jesus, we want to invite you to partake of communion with us. In heaven, there will not just be village churches, amen? There will be people from every tribe and tongue and language, and they're going to be brothers and sisters from millennia past and probably many, many years into the future lest Jesus come back. And what binds us together is more than a membership in a local church, but it's the blood of Jesus. So you are, might be visiting. Your family might have dragged. You might be out of town. We want to celebrate communion with you because we're one in Christ. Now, there are going to be elements over to my right, your left. There's a column there. Also over to my left, your right, and then in the middle, back. You might be here, and you've never trusted in Jesus Communion is weird. You know, you go to a church and you're like, what do I do in these moments? Um, here's what we ask. If you've never trusted in Christ and you're not ready to right now, don't partake. The reason we ask you not to partake is because the Bible says that as we practice this, as we partake of these elements, we're actually making a public nonverbal declaration that we believe that Jesus is our God and he died on the cross for our sins. So if you're not there, we just love you. Glad you're here. But we ask that you don't partake. So what we're going to do is have a time of silence. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to sing together. And during the song, I want to invite you to get up and go get elements and then save them to the end of the song. We're going to partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. Let's have a time of silence and gratitude with the Lord.